You are listening. You are listening. You are listening to the Fly Fishing ninety seven podcast. Um, you know. <laughs> you're killing, you're killing me, man. I, I love it. I <laughs> well, love that's it. Just the truth. <laughs> you want the truth? You can't handle the truth. Um, and then I always, I also put one in there from Tony Bennett. He said, you know, I love what I, I, I love what I've been doing all these years, and I'm get, and I'm still getting away with it. Uh, <laughs> I like that. And well, years ago, I just love that. Years ago, I remember I was, I was watching Larry King. And he said um, he was interview, interviewing a Winona Judd, you know, from the Judd's, you know, famous duo, mother's daughter's duo. And um, he was saying, you know, about life and the traveling and all this business and stuff and, you know, trying to live a normal life. And she said, and I use this as a quote, she goes, she goes, normal? What's normal? Normal is just some setting on a washing machine. <laughs> that's, that's That's exactly right. Here's another one for you. If you know you're loved, you exist in fertile soil. Yeah, so I've used stuff like that too, and often and oftentimes I'm speaking to somebody actually. Okay, I got one. <laughs> I got one more for you. Personality can okay. open. Personality can open doors, but only character can keep them open. Oh yeah, that's true. You know, a lot of people are outgoing, and they, you, know, you like them right off the bat, and then pretty soon you realize, you know, they're kind of jerks or something. But that's true. You got to you got to follow through and be an honest, decent person, and uh, you know, and then then you and think long term. You know, when you're a young kid, young buck or something, it's like you get a little carried away on yourself. But you know, pretty soon you realize that just be yourself and tell the truth. Mm, and um, yeah, you know, you never have to. It's like Dale's saying, or if you always tell the truth, you never have to remember what you said. Well, um, well, too much. Well, the internet, of course, when it, when people point out, you know, they have a big fishing day on the some river or something, and then they, you know, they want to show everybody and show the fish, or whatever. That is really quite damaging. It brings so much, so much, you know, uh, notice to that river so quickly that, um, you know, it gets overrun. You know, and uh, you certainly see that a lot of places heavily fish Montana, whatever, and so people need to be are quiet about it um also always no matter what the regs are always press the barbs down um uh, nothing's worse than uh than um you know catching a fish you know i won't i won't fish rivers that have fish that have a lot of sore mouths and stuff it just makes me feel like i'm hassling wildlife um you know so it's about learning how to fish you know how to love it more and fish a little less maybe i mean that might be it and kind of taking a bigger picture there and share it you know the bet you know to me uh, another quote i put in years ago i believe it totally you know all the stuff about being a great fisherman or something the best fishermen in the world are the people who enjoy it the most and share it the best welcome to the fly fishing 97 podcast featuring interviews with passionate people within the fly fishing industry we focus on guides conservation resort managers gear and talented fly tires bringing usable information to fly fishers the fly fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by the fly crate the flycrate.com is your source for all things fly fishing the fly crate offers a monthly fly club we select patterns every month for your home waters with membership you'll receive flies created to match the hatch in your area along with the fly crates guide magazine the convenience of having flies delivered right to your door some sweet stickers discover new patterns and start stocking your fly boxes now theflycrate.com here's your host mark hopley 
Well, support for the Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by Manscaped. Take your time, fellas. Manscaped has you covered. Men, let's be honest. If you're still shaving your face and body with the same trimmer, you're probably doing it wrong. Boost your confidence with this new body trimmer from Manscaped. Take me time to the best time with a smooth shave. Get 20% off and free shipping worldwide with this code FF97podcast. That's FF97podcast at manscaped.com. 20% off free shipping worldwide. Use the best tools for the job. Welcome to this edition of the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Very happy you chose to join us today. We got something very special for you. Uh, We've got David Lambrouten on the show today. Now, writer, photographer, publisher. He splits his time between British Columbia and New Zealand. Uh, Originally grew up in California, guided for many years in NorCal, Alaska, Oregon, Yellowstone, Skeena. Now, this guy has fly fished his way around literally around the planet. Russia, China, Chile, Argentina, Belize, Mexico, Costa Rica, Fiji, the Seychelles, Tahiti, you name it, he's been there. And uh, in the late 80s, he kind of shifted gears from guiding and focused on photography. I guarantee you've read many of his articles, seen many of his pictures. He does a fly fishing calendar called Fly Fishing Dreams, which uh, you should check it out. It's beautiful. And I know he gets his swim in every single morning. David, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So let's um, let's kick it off to the beginning because I know that you got I, you're sitting on some some nuggets. I know that, but let's let's start at the beginning, like ground zero for you. How did you get into fly fishing? How did this obsession for all things fins and flies start for you? Well, I kind of actually I just well I grew up there in Sunnyvale, California, right in the middle of Silicon Valley. It was a great place to grow up, you know, a lot of orchards and baseball and little league. And, um, you know, now, of course, when I go back, I don't like it. I, I, I back for speaking engagements a few times, but it's all paved over and kind of like that Joni Mitchell song. They paved paradise and built a parking lot. <laughs> um, so I kind of avoid that. But it was a wonderful background. And on my little street there, you know, you knew all the neighbors. And it was kind of that kind of a deal. And um, there was an old man down the street and his wife kind of died. She was my mother's best friend i think she died kind of unexpectedly and he was you know a, an avid fisherman and hunter so um i'd walk down there on summer nights or you know various times every few weeks or whatever and um you know he kind of would give me all the old magazines of fly the outdoor life and field and stream and mm-hmm. sport the field and and then he would give me fishing rods and and um you know different things like that so you kind of learn about giving to kids and stuff i've I, you know, kind of played that forward all my life, really. Um, so anyway, so that kind of got me really hooked on it. And then every every little place in the Bay Area that we get our bicycles to or get my mom to drive us in the car or something, no fish was safe. You know, we'd sneak into golf courses at daybreak and, you know, fish for bass or bluegill or any, every, no fish was safe. <laughs> um, but even then, we never killed them. Really, I didn't want to clean them or eat them. We just put them back in pretty much. Yeah. Um, so that kind of was kind of the, the initial, you know, bite on the fishing thing. And that was all kinds of fishing. Um, and then later, and I did that during high school and everything. And then after, after a while there, I, when I finished high school, um, my parents uh, retired and moved to British Columbia. My dad was originally from Canada. So we always had an affinity up here and did family vacations. And so um, anyway, so they 
came up here as I went to college, they went to British Columbia. Um, and then except for one summer in Europe with my girlfriend, their college girlfriend, um, I started coming up to Canada for the summer. And um, that's when I first kind of really hit it big. You know, I, I would say there's little lakes and you go out there and get a whole bunch of nice wild fat, you know, 12 to 18 inch fish or sometimes bigger or whatever. But, you know, to me, that was my first that that really solidified my summer programs from then on out. So hmm. as soon as I'd get out of college there at San Jose State, I would just hop in my Volkswagen bug there and drive 24 hours nonstop right from San Jose to up the Okanagan Valley here where I live today, actually, in uh, British Columbia. Um, and then I would fish my brains out for two or three weeks. Um, and then the first cut of hay would come up for this big dairy farm of people that um, would hire me to put their hay in the barn. So um, anyway, I thought that was a great job. I was like, it paid a hundred dollars a day to work out. So um, anyway, so I did that and you put the first cut of hay in there, get some money, take my dad's truck, poor thing. I beat it up pretty good. A lot of mud holes. Anyway, I'd go fish. I'd go fish nonstop for a couple, two, three weeks or something. And then come back, put up the second cut of hay in the barn and then do the same thing again, go fishing. Um, and then uh, explore all over the, this interior part of BC and then um, drive like a bat out of hell all the way back to, in time to make fall registration for my, the fall semester classes at San Jose State and try and make it up to you know, my girlfriend, who I abandoned all summer. It's kind of been a life story there, um, habit. Um, anyway, and then uh, repeat the same thing the next summer. And also during that time, I met a really interesting person it, it had a big influence on the way i live my life since i think is bob quigley the famous fly uh, tire okay um and he was he lived in san jose and um was good friends with uh, neil bohannon who had the uh, fly hutch uh fly fishing store one of the early ones uh there on the el camino real in santa clara california so i took um during college there i took a fly tying course there in the, during the winter and learned how to tie flies and, um, and and developed kind of a nice friendship there with Bob Quigley. Um, anyway, so we always kept in touch and stuff and fished and went to Puda Creek and different places. Um, and then after I got out of college, I um, and I knew right away I wanted to get out of the Bay Area. And I, I didn't like living in an urban area. I just liked being out in the country and fishing and stuff. So um, anyway, so I hooked up with Bob there. He had a little fly shop he put together at Rick's Lodge on Fall River. This was 1976. Um, so anyway, so I worked with Bob and then I guided. I tied, we tied flies in the shop all night or, you know, did a lot of that. And he was just a great guy to sit across the fly tying table from. And he was so good. And, to, you know, to learn uh, how to tie really nice flies. So which I've always enjoyed. I, to me, fly tying um, is kind of like I call it meditation with a fishing theme. So I like tying, you know, four, mm -hmm. five, five or six and have a cup of tea on the screened in porch in the morning or, you know, after coming in from a swim or something, you should sit a long period of time, really. But um, so three or four here, three or four there, dozen a day. Anyway, so I've kind of had that habit for forever. So we guided on Fall River and it was we charged thirty five dollars for the morning hatch, which was right there above the lodge, which to this day would be the heaviest mayfly hatch I've ever seen anywhere in the world. Pale morning duns would just come by by the thousands mm. uh, and then collect the spinners around the boat docks. It'd cover, you know, 15 or 20 
square feet or uh, yeah, I mean bigger in the boats, would be a solid mass of of uh, spent pale morning duns, the enormous and then later the infrequent. So anyway, nothing's ever matched that. So that was and that also kind of got me really kind of hooked on spring creeks a lot. I've always had a real affinity after that for fishing spring creeks. Right. So anyway, so I did that for for that at for that year. And then later, you know, I just got really locked into this thing. And I, 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 meeting Bob Quigley, I think, probably decreased my lifetime expected earnings by about 50%. Oh, hold, on. Um, hold on a second here. <laughs> no, I got, this is where I want to go next uh, with you, David, is you got to tell me. So, I mean, who influenced you? Because I know you've influenced a lot of people. I, I heard you speak over 30 years ago at our local um, fly club, you brought your calendars. We talked about your fishing experiences and I thought, man, this guy's sitting on some nuggets. I obviously, um, Bob is, is a huge influence in, in your fly fishing, but if you had to look back and name a few people that have really influenced you, kind of mentored you, tutored you, or who you've learned from, can you throw a few uh, names? Well, I mean, um, well, I learned from people when I started guiding, I think is what, you know, it was just an education because usually, um, you know, you met people that have been there that, uh, you know, like Alaska, for example, there'd be people there that had guided there for two or three or four years in a row before me. And so when you sit there and you come in there, um, you don't know anything about anything, um, you know, but, you know, but there's so many fish around and it's pretty hard to screw up, really. You just have to run a boat straight and not kill anybody. Um, so you learn from I've learned a lot from the people that were the, the guides and places that I went who had all that previous experience. Um, and I'll get to that later. And a couple of them later, uh, certainly um, there's quite a, quite a, f- a few of them, but um, anyway, so I, I got it there in Alaska and spent a whole summer up there. And that was a great experience and all the people you meet. And uh, one of them was John Goddard, uh, who I'll talk about later, but that um, he became uh, right now, why not? He, um, so I met him up there in Alaska. And then later I ran to him a few times in, uh, uh, New Zealand. And then, um, you know, a few years later, and then, um, we started, we kind of developed a friendship and corresponded. And then I started fishing in, um, um, Norway and uh, Russia for salmon and stuff. And you had to, at those days, probably same as today, you can't do that whole flight in one day. So you have to overnight in London. So John would say, John Gardner said, well, listen, why don't you just come for a week, you know, you know, overnight for a week and we'll go fishing. So and he, at that time, he was a member of all the, the you know, the, he was like the Joe Brooks really of, uh, of, uh, of the UK of England. Uh, he didn't get into salmon fishing much, but he trout fished everywhere. Um, anyway, and traveled all over the world. So he was a great source of fun and you know, knowledge. So uh, he would pick me up at Heathrow and then we would um, drive to his little country place. Had, him and his wife had a beautiful home uh, with a little lake in the backyard, and which kind of surrounded by about five or six different homes. Um, anyway, so that was a great introduction to chalk stream fishing in England. And, you know, he was a member of the, all the best clubs on the, the Test and the Itchin and the Kennets and other ones. So um, it was just a great eye-opener. And so that would usually do that when I was on the way to Norway or Russia, which would be probably mostly in you know, early, late June or early July, right when Wimbledon would be on, actually, which wasn't necessarily the very best time to fish the chalk streams. Later trips, I'd like, I would go with the month of May when the big Danica hatches. That's the, that's really the best month of the year over there. But um, he would be a, certainly a, a person that really turned me on to a lot of fun and 
and um, you know ideas on fishing and he wrote books on the trout and the fly and um, so that was a nice you know so that would be a real mentor for me and mm-hmm. um, anyway and then after after that back the guiding drill after I did the uh, New Zealand um, I mean after I did um, uh, the the Bristol Bay uh, Lodge thing in Alaska and I've been back up there a few times since doing float trips and things with friends for fun. But um, then I went to the Deschutes River in Oregon, and that was uh, you know, kind of a good introduction to steelhead fishing there at the second half of the season. The first half of the season was mostly trout fishing and running some pretty big whitewater, you know, in drift boats. I worked for Randall Kaufman, who I just saw last week, uh, two weeks ago in Jackson Hole, incidentally. Um, anyway, so that was a good, that was a nice thing. And after that, um, I um, started um, um going to well first off then i went to actually to west yellowstone after that and i did five summers there and uh, i had met pat barnes on my honeymoon in new zealand in 1980 and he said well why don't you come and guide for me so uh 1980 we i went to uh west yellowstone and i fished here a number of times since the early 70s and the henry's fork and stuff but that's the first time i just spent the whole summer there he rented us a beautiful cabin well, run down the forest, you know, but beautiful to us. $600 for the entire season, utilities included, right on the park boundary, built by the Eagle family in 1913. Mm-hmm. So then, you know, so then there we started the whole season out there, like in May. And there was a guy there that had been there for a number of years named Gail Fulton. Uh, he died just a few years ago. He was from Carter, Arkansas, on the White River there. But, um, you know, so I just got the tour with the people who had been doing it for years. So, you just went right through the drill there as, you know, opening May was fire hole, early June. And then you went into the box canyon then of the uh, uh, Henry's Fork. You know, the salmon fly hatch was there earlier. And then we did the big hole a little bit. Then the Madison would kick off. Um, and after that slowed down a little bit, we'd start uh, going up to, uh, we'd fish the gulpers on Hebkin Lake. That'd be the August thing. And also going up and fishing the ponds in Centennial Valley. Uh, McDonald's Pond and Widow's Pool and all that, and Henry's Lake a little bit. Uh, then after that would be the, um, the Barnes Pool, where the, these Hebkin Lake fish would run up uh, into the park there, and that was just lovely. Now I guess it's quite crowded, but you know it's just it's like miniature steelhead fishing. I met Sylvester Neems there on the bank of the Barnes Pool, the Barnes Pool number two there, and we kind of got a friendship going. He's the guy who started, uh, the, you know, wrote that book, The Soft Hackle Fly Addict. Yeah. So he'd say, oh, what's your favorite fly and all this kind of stuff. And, that, and we'd tie like partridge and orange, like in a size 10. Uh, and we'd use them on little Wilson hooks, you know, like those little classics, you know, Atlantic salmon type hooks. So it was like miniature steelhead fishing is what it was. And uh, take a cast, take a step and just swing these flies on a six weight rod and six pound maxima tippet and a size 10 partridge and orange. And you get these wonderful hits, you know, they'd hit like, you know, on a tight line like that. It was wonderful. Mm. And you get three or four or five in the morning sometimes. And they'd all be 16 to 20 inches, sometimes a little bigger. Anyway, that was kind of a nice experience. And then it got to be kind of cold up there, October. So then it was time to uh, to get out of there. And, and then uh, we'd come up here to Canada and uh, house sit for my parents um, while they went to California or Florida. And, and so we started spending the winters in British Columbia. And then uh, one day uh, I was photographing in the fall there, run a salmon on uh, on um, the uh, Adams River here, not too far away from where I live, the big tributary of that Shuswap Lake. 
anyway, loaded with fish. And then, so I was taking a picture there. And, and um, my girlfriend at the time, who I'd met um, at Bristow Bay Lodge, she worked out there. She said, you know, instead of a, a wedding, you know, we were talking about getting married. It all never even entered my mind. Um, she goes, instead of, instead of a big wedding, if we got married, instead of a big wedding, my parents would be happy to buy us two tickets to New Zealand. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to New Zealand. You know, that's about as far as I ever thought about it. Uh, and we went down there, and that was my first trip of 40 now, I guess, 1980. And I was back almost every single year. In the last 35 years, I think I've been there pretty much the full seasons. Right. You know? So that's been a big, big thing for me is going down there, so, spending so, the winter. And uh, So I think – unfortunately. Yeah, I, I was just gonna say, David. So I, I got, I got a real good feel for man. You're, you're dropping some names, naming some places. I just, I want to get to know you off the water a little bit before we dig into what you're up to. Um, you ready for a few oh, okay. questions that may or may not have a lot to do with fishing? Sure. So let's t- let's talk tunes. So if you are in your vehicle, let's say you're in New Zealand or um, wherever you happen to be, driving your favorite stretch what is playing in the truck on the stereo (laughs) um well it could be anything actually down there uh when you're in new zealand you know i guess it's because they get uh music feeds a little cheaper if they're a little bit older so you listen you're listening to music it's changing of course now a little bit but you're listening to stuff that's you know a little bit older you know like a a decade ahead of you a little bit but just kind of a, for fun there, when we'd have it, we have a put a tape deck in thing. Um, uh, I always listen to uh, just for just for the hell of it. When I drive down this little road, which I spend a lot of time on the west coast of the South Island doing the Spring Creeks over there, I'm really addicted to those things. Um, I play uh, for for fun for tradition. I play ABBA and I play. Fernando, because a friend of mine, we just always joke about that. <laughs> so I, I drive on this road and I put on Fernando. And because I just, I'm, in my head, I'm thinking, God, this this is really unique. You know, driving down a great spring creek on the west coast of Vancouver, I mean, of uh, of the South Island, listen to Fernando. And I think nobody in the entire world is doing that. You know, I mean, just a unique <laughs> experience on a global level. You can own so, that. Yeah. You can own that. <laughs> yeah. So a little bit of that. And plus, uh, you know, and one thing I like down there, just to break, to break it all up a little bit, I play a lot of golf in New Zealand. Okay. Um, um, and I joined, uh, I joined the uh, a club down there where my cottage, I spend most of the time down the South Island. So I have a cottage down there in the, right in the middle of that Matara drainage, which I like. I really love that. So I so um, and I like to tell people, I say, you know, I don't mind paying the big exorbitant uh, golf fees uh, for the private club down there because it ensures that I won't run into any scumballs like myself. Um, <laughs> anyway, and so it's a, it's about it'd be less. It'd be about 100. It'd be less in, in U.S. dollars. We'll probably keep in most of your audience by U.S. So we'll keep stuff in U.S. figures where where it applies. So the golfing for a whole summer season down there would be. Uh, like maybe seventy-five or eighty dollars U.S. for the entire summer. What? And there's no green fees, and it's a beautiful course. Wow. And um, so, um, and it's nine holes. So my, for me, like my ideal day down there, uh, often is I'll get up in the morning, have a little smoothie or something, a cup of coffee, or you know, and then go play nine holes of golf. And um, 
I'll have the course all myself, almost 90% of the time I'm the only car in the parking lot. And it's a nice course, um, my favorite course actually. And I did that a lot in North Island when I used to spend time around Tarangi. I joined the club up there and it was even cheaper at that time. Hmm. Uh, ridiculous. Anyway, and then come back and then have breakfast, make a sandwich and then have with my buddies or whatever. Uh, go fishing and you know then it's nice to start really if you have your the luxury of it all start fishing around 10 o'clock the sun's up a little higher uh, you can see the fish a lot better and then you fish from 10 to 5 or something that's enough you know if you do that every day you get your fill of it and then have a kind of early dinner and then if you want nice evening um, go out and 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 fish in the evening often there's an evening hatch often sometimes Um, and certainly when I have visiting me from uh, England or Ireland uh, that's they they just live for that. So after dinner, you know, they'll, they'll be putting their waiters on or something. I'll say, what are you doing? They go, oh, we're going fishing. And then and I don't do that much at nighttime. I can't really get, I get enough fishing in the daytime and you, I can't get photographed. You photograph somebody in the dark, they look like deer in the headlights. Um, <laughs> so anyway, so they come back at, you know, midnight or one in the morning and they've got all these uh, crappy photos on their iPhones um uh, but pretty but fish at average a little bit bigger actually than they do in the daytime so anyway that's their norm they do that for sea trout and all that stuff so they they fish at night a lot in the uk and and ireland so it's interesting when i meet these people that over the years from speaking engagements or traveling you know they come down they got a whole new take on something a new style of fishing and uh so that's been fun it's been fun to exchange and to spend time with them over in england and ireland and and fish their waters as well. So anyway, so it sounds to me like you're living your best life over there, man. You're making me a little jealous. I'm not going to lie. I let I want to get back to one go-to fly pattern that you can't live without. So if you're fishing your favorite, say you're fishing your favorite spring creek in New Zealand, what would be one pattern, David, that you reach for more often than not? Well, I tell you, and um, it's funny you don't see them in the fly shops at all, really. Um, or they try and make them really elaborate or, you know, to make them more look like they're worth three or four bucks or whatever they're selling them for now. But I tell you, if I was limited, limited to just one dry fly, probably in New Zealand, it would probably be a size 16 for the waters I fish, uh, a size 16 CDC caddis. Um, and they don't photograph very well. They look like little shaggy nothings, really. But um, you put it next to a caddis in your hand, and they look pretty identical. But that's a fly that you can throw, you know, over and over uh, a fish and, until you get this timing right, and they'll take it. Where if you put on a fly like, say, a, you know, the old days or something, a royal wolf or whatever, if they didn't take that in the first couple of casts, you know, they probably wouldn't take it because it just doesn't look right. But a CDC caddis, um, just, and the same thing with a nymph would be, my favorite nymph would be a heron copper with a black bead. You could throw that uh, to a feeding fish and they're swinging in a riffle. You know, we call them swingers. You can pump that in there a bunch of times and they'll take it. They take it in the 15th or 20th cast maybe, or usually earlier, um, because it just looks like a real thing coming down. It's not too gaudy. But if I put on what I call a, a rubber leg stonefly nymph like a size 10 or something mm-hmm. i call that the closer after you give up on can't get them to bite something or they're down deeper you know in a funny place you need a little more weight uh if i put a, put that on there uh, if they don't take it in the first cast or two they'll never take it ever because the chances of a big bat coming through their front door twice in 45 seconds is like zero right. and those people those fish all of a sudden will go hey 
something's wrong here. You know, yeah. and they may leave or they might just tighten up and something, you know, something doesn't get, smell right. You know? Yeah. They get slowly welded to the bottom of the river. Um, you, you know what so I'm curious? Anyway, I'm, I'm curious about your yeah. favorite place to talk fly fishing. So I know, I mean, it's your life. It's what you do. And I know you do a lot of writing, a lot of photography, a lot of travel, but is there a, a go-to fly shop for you? Is there a brew pub? Where do you get your fix on fly fishing when you're not in your waders? Where do I, where do I get my fix on fly fishing when I'm not fishing? Exactly. Yeah. Oh, um, well, I don't know. I, I, um, I enjoy the time not fishing. Actually. I like playing golf and I like, um, riding my bike and swimming every morning and, you know, and a lot of it's just because I like what I do and I want to be able to hike up and down rivers and travel and lift gear bags up as long as possible. So hmm. I put a lot of time into fitness actually. And then, you know, last year I got back and, you know, cause I couldn't with COVID, I couldn't travel to New Zealand. I, um, I just got right. I rediscovered, you know, skiing. I, and I, I skied up my butt off there. And, um, uh, anyway, and this year I, hopefully I get back down there. If not, I'm going to, uh, this year I'm going to do cross country scan. Nice. I've also been taking uh, lessons to fly ultralights and stuff, so I'm kind of toying around with that idea. Well, um, you're you're in a good I, spot where you're at for that. Where where did your passion for swimming come from? Is that something you've always had? I've always done that um, since a little kid. I always like you know, mom, dad, please get a when we're traveling, please get a. Uh, a motel with a pool in it, you know, and anyway, so I was just in the water all the time, but it's such a relaxing way for me to start the day and to, uh, you know, to stay in shape. You don't still get injured as much. You know, yeah, I do a rowing machine. I'm watching golf like this past weekend, the FedEx thing. And, you know, just, you know, the $10 million putt there that John Rom, you know, could have made there. And, you know, it's just grips, very gripping, but I usually be on a rowing machine, you know, just slowly doing right in front of the TV set doing that. So just try, trying to stay in shape. But right. my deal, I just, I'm just addicted to getting up in the, at early in the morning. And then I go to, I have a nice pool about 10 miles away. It takes about 12 minutes to get there. And I just dive in and I swim for about, you know, 45 minutes. Uh, and then I get out and I take a jacuzzi with all the jets and stuff, you know, and, and do a bunch of stretches in there and rinse off then i go take a steam bath and i'll do it again tomorrow morning every morning then i take a steam bath and then i come out of there and take a nice shower and yeah and then you i i like to sell, tell people when you walk out there in the cool air in the parking lot you know you get out to your car i mean you're such in a wonderful headspace that i don't feel like killing anybody till at least noon sometimes one or two o'clock <laughs> that's, that's my joke i mean you know someone could hit you someone could crash into your car in the parking lot and you just say hey don't worry, man. It's insured. I mean, you're in that. It's just such a relaxing way to start the day. Uh, that's one thing. That's one thing I so, remember about talking or listening to you talk thirty years ago. Your sense of humor was like, <laughs> uh, I I can see where you're going with that. Um, and 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 even through your photography, I could see it. So some some of the pictures you've done over the years, and we'll we'll dig into that. I. I Oh yeah, you the, bird, were... the bird, burned off leg would be my uh, signature shot. You've yeah. probably seen that. I have, I have. <laughs> we'll we'll talk about that in a bit. Um, I know you're not a huge sports guy. In fact, when I asked you about sports, when we did kind of a pre-interview interview, you you kind of um, you had a great quote, and I can't remember exactly how it went. But when I when you think sports, well, it's kind of, it's, it's 
it's my joke. I always say people who watch sports on TV are just a bunch of losers, except for golf. No, that's okay. <laughs> so, but I do watch. I like watching a little bit of sports once in a while, but I don't, not much really. But I do watch golf on, on the weekends and uh, the big tournaments a little bit because I, you know, you know. Actually, I think, I think, I by one of my little jokes to be, I play golf just so I can appreciate it on TV. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of us are in that boat. Um, l- let's talk about lessons learned. So all your years on the water chasing fish tying flies doing your photography what's the single biggest takeaway if you could distill down this whole fly fishing well, thing i think what the thing i appreciate out of out of uh, uh, the most is that all these incredible people that is brought into my life you know people you normally wouldn't meet a lot of professional people a lot of interesting brilliant people um you know that just become lifetime friends um that that's what I that's what I my biggest pleasure I think out of uh, being a, this life of traveling and fly fishing uh, would be it be the people that I meet um, and the friendships that you know just that it, that it creates yeah um, and I just love that so uh, hmm. and that's what I and that's really kind of what I do I you know I my thing is I organize fishing trips um, just with friends of mine and then we go on these trips or they come down in New Zealand or you know, wherever we do steelhead fishing or something, Dean river. I'll get to that a little later. Did 20 years on that. Um, and we just share the cost, you know, so it, everyone doesn't, it's, there's no guiding or nothing like that. And then I have, I'm with my best buddies, but also I've got people to take photos of and, and, you know, and say, you know, maybe I put a radio on them. If I'm far away, I'll say, take two steps to the left, you know, and, I'm trying to clear their head so it doesn't meet the river bank or, you know, you kind of frame things up a little bit to take the photo. And uh, so that usually now, I, you know, I get more, more pleasure. I give the fish away really mostly. If I see, if I see some nice fish rising somewhere like in New Zealand, for example, and, you know, a nice big five, six pound brown trout or something. And, you know, there's a, there's certain times where they're just sitting ducks. You can, you know, they're so they're biting so rapidly that, a, you know, a chimpanzee could catch them. Anyway, I'm not about to cast of that fish, but some guy who I'm fishing with who worked his butt off all his life and went through the trauma and that payments and the stress and the kids that told him to go to hell and, you know, all that stuff of life, you know, that guy deserves that fish. I don't. And uh, so I much I get a much bigger kick out saying, okay, right over there by that branch there, you know, and I get up back there and get ready with my camera, maybe get a jump shot or something or whatever. And also when I take people fishing like that, especially younger guys now, I feed off that enthusiasm, you know, instead of turning some old curmudgeon or whatever, I'm believe I'm reliving a lot of it through the through their enjoyment and yeah. their ex- excitement. Um, so, uh, I like that. I and think that's that, why when I do my speaking engagements or slideshows or something, uh, I only out of 470 shots in a show or something, um, one or two might be of me. Uh, the rest of them are all about other people. And I like doing that. I like doing that in the calendar too. I, I don't use the word I or me. It's all about other people, mm-hmm. great photographers. Sometimes I use a photo from somebody else and, no, it's a lot easier to honk other people's horn than trying to honk your own. Yeah, hundred um, percent. I think, I think too, David. That's the evolution of fly fishing for me. I think the longer we do this, 
the more I know I'm, I'm in the same boat, the more enjoyment I get out of seeing other people enjoy it. It's like, you know, when you're young and you're just getting into it and you're just kind of getting your waders wet, you just want to catch fish and you just want to get out there and you're just always pumped. But when you can sit back and watch somebody else, you, you oh, yeah, and it's just you start living through them, own, you know, it's your own evolution as a person, really. I, I and I always put quotes in my counters and I make them up or I hear somebody on TV or something. I just I read it in a book. I just jot things down. But one of them that I, I, um, I, I put in there a couple of years ago, I said, you know, and I just I put my name by it, um, is that, you know, the first half of your life is kind of driven by ego. And the second half of your life is uh, looking inward and uh, learning to let go of it and le- looking inward. Um, that's mm-hmm. kind of, I think, a, a general format that a lot of people go through. You're aggressive. You want to get the, you want to catch the most fish, the biggest fish, all that kind of stuff. And then later, you get a much bigger kick out of, you know, sharing that knowledge. It's kind of like that old uh, Dalai Lama quote. I think it is. You know, um, share. You know, you want to MRT. You want immortality. Well, share your knowledge. You know, that's kind of. Yeah. I like that. That's that's really well put. Fill in the blank for me. When I'm not fly fishing, I'm usually doing what? Oh, um, well, I'm, I'm you know I ski and I'm, now I'm flying these ultralights a little bit. I like and I have a uh, a nice Bergman 400 uh, scooter and um, um, it's real quiet and uh, powerful enough. Didn't all the bike I need, but I, I after dinners or something, I like going out. I load that up. Uh, I mean, I go, you know, just get out and, and look at the crops. And I got all these little beautiful country roads around here with no traffic, especially after the evening or something. So it's very, it's as safe as you could. I would never own them if I lived in a city ever. That'd just be nerve wracking. But here it's empty country roads. So I like that. And also between trips, you know, uh, what I like doing too is um, loaded up with food. And, and um, as you live in these little small towns, you know, you create these friendships with tradespeople and stuff, people who helped me build my horse barn or help me put the deck on the front of the house here or did the stonework on a fireplace or put the new septic field in or, you know, that kind of stuff. So you can, you know, you work with these people side by side for a week or so, and, you know, you kind of develop a friendship. So uh, and then a lot of these guys are, you know, kind of old and, you know, COVID really opened my eyes to what it's like to be kind of cut off from the world a little bit and isolated. And that's what it is for a lot of these older people. So what I do is I load up that, that scooter I've got. You open, pop the seat, and I got a little rack on the back. You can load a lot of stuff in it, like five or six dozen ears of corn, which I did this past few weeks. Um, there could be asparagus or blueberries or all the things that come up in the country life around here. You know, there's little little places that you stop, and you can buy apples or eggs or whatever. And they've got an honor box. You just put the money in the jar, and if you need to make change, you make change, and take your eggs or take the asparagus or whatever it is and off you go. So I just love that kind of stuff. So I'll load that or baked goods. I'll load that up and then just go visit these people for 10 or 15 minutes and say, Hey, how's it going? And make them laugh a little bit and give them the corn and you know, whatever it is. And, um, and I, I've come to realize through my own isolation or, you know, when, when it, we don't have a lot of visitors or, you know, in the COVID thing, um, how important that is, you know, to have that little contact with somebody. So um, I like doing that. You know, some of these old timers, I know them so well, they'll say, you know, they'll have a problem with the, you know, need the rain gutters cleared or something a little bit or um, or some faucet that drips all the time or, you know, so you just kind of help people out a little bit. 
Um, or, you know, sometimes they'll say, you know, someone will say, you know, listen, I, they kind of embarrass, they ask you, they'll say, you know, I can't reach my toes anymore. You know, you could, would you mind cutting my toenails? So I do that a little bit, I've, you know, <laughs> half a dozen times a year or something. You know anyway, what? and all that's this stuff. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Well, I just, you know, and I mean, you could also look at it in a, in a kind of a selfish way, too. When you do stuff like that for other people, it really makes you feel good about yourself. So when yeah. you go through some heartbreak or, you know, romantic thing or, you know, any problem in life or whatever, mm. you know, you, you can recover a lot quicker if you have a good self-esteem, that you know I'm an okay person or, you know, I'm a good guy or and that's, you know, so that's the byproduct of be, of being, of doing good things for others. So I like that. Love so it. I try and do that in between adventures when I'm back in town a little bit and, you know, help mow someone's lawn or something. Or cool. um, Anyway, it's part of that small town life, which I just love. I've, I live in a town about 5,000 people and it's just perfect and mm. really super good loaded grocery store. That's kind of the criteria. If you want to live in a small town, you have to have access to really good yeah healthy organic well, food you and i are very um, not very far apart at all i think we're gonna have to chase some fins here but i i know they say that if you work for yourself you never work a day in your life and i know oh i know you're a self-starter but what, what i want to ask you david is what's the best job you've ever had and you've had a lot of them whether it's guiding or writing or photography but if you had to say this is the best gig are you doing it now oh i've been yeah, I've been doing it my entire life, actually. Um, yeah, so I mean, and I would have done it for free, really. I don't. I, all these things I do, I I, I, I just have fun, pretty much. But I mean, you know, it isn't when you travel like that. It's not the best for you know being married or having uh, girlfriends or things. I mean, you know, you have to be around. You just can't go all the time. Um, but probably one of my favorite jobs, actually, at the time was. Uh, when I was going to college, um, you know, I worked at these steak and lobster places, you know, in, in the Bay Area. So you'd wear shorts and a Hawaiian shirt just to work. And, um, you know, then all the beautiful cocktail waitresses and all the, you know, you just enter. It was just your social life and your work life were kind of inter, intertwined, really. And um, you liked working on weekends because you, you that was one thing that was kind of changed my headspace a little bit on employment and things it broke you right away from any kind of idea that you'd ever want to work for uh, do an eight to five Monday to Friday job. So all of a sudden when we play tennis, I did lots of that for years um, or, or played golf or went skiing or whatever you did them on weekdays. So you never faced any rush hour traffic. You never had lines at the ski hill or there was always empty tennis courts, uh, not too busy at the golf course, that sort of thing. So um, you kind of broke that, the normal mold of a normal, working life really um hmm. so that that had an impact on me i okay. think so, you, you can't give that once you experience experience that you know i think you really crave it and work try to work your life around that david and, i'm gonna uh, flip i'm gonna flip the coin what's what's the worst job you ever had um god i don't i've never really had a bad job that drove me crazy or anything i've for uh, actually, well, I it was a, it was still a nice job. I worked as a for, I had kind of a real job in a way for about four or five years, um, um, being a sales rep for some companies here in British Columbia. But um, it didn't add up to a lot of time. And every every time I went on a sales trip, it was a fishing trip up to the Skeena country or you know anywhere in BC. I just took I went fishing and then I'd 
drop in at a few gift stores or something and say, hey, how's it going and take an order or something. Um, mm-hmm. But I always felt that I was kind of just selling junk to people who didn't need it. And then I would, you know, have a couple magazines. I just did a story on that be showing that to the girl, the woman, the manager of the store. Like, oh, I just did a story and, you know, show them what I was doing on the side there. So I was kind of proud of that. But um, but I, would, I bet it was a good job. I made a, a ton of money and, and uh, that was nice. And and I was able to mm-hmm. um, build a house on the Tongariro River at Tongariro Lodge uh, for a couple of years. And then I sold it. And then uh, I le- and then now I spend most of the time on South Island or all the time. Would, would um, so you, that, that was okay, but it wasn't a terrible job. Would you say I that you I, turned I, your side hustle into your life? Yeah, it's all built around that, really. Um, yeah. yeah, and um, but it was nice. I mean, and but I mean, I, I had good family and stuff, and got good breaks in life. But um, you know, if I had to um, uh, had house payments or car payments or put kids through college or all that kind of stuff. It would have been a terrible grind. I mean, impossible. It would have, I would have killed. I would have had to work so hard at the fishing thing um, that it w- I would have destroyed the, the enjoyment out of it completely. How so, how um, important, David, is is it for you to find that balance? You know, between the balance between going for your swims and 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 uh, you know doing your ultralight stuff, and then you know your time off from fishing as much as you love it and it's your life having that balance between the world well it's easy i just it's like water going downhill i'm I'm home i really like being home and i like and actually as i'm getting older i like being home even more so you know you can kind of you really can control your exercise routine and your diet and i mean i I say tell people if you're in montana out in the middle of you know cascade or craig montana or something or fishing missouri river just order a hamburger don't 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 try and get fancy with the menu because it's crap mostly <laughs> so basically you know now we do, when we travel we take you know i we do as much cooking as we can uh, uh get kitchenette units and things like that because i like to cook and i want to eat good food i don't want to eat junk um so anyway so that hasn't been an, a big effort at all it's just been natural um i like when i go places and i like when i'm home and um mm. I, it all depends on the weather and you know, I don't think I've ever spent a beautiful day indoors for decades. Um, you know, so you kind of build around it. And anyway, it seems like it seems like you've found a nice balance. And just I, I think talking with you maybe 30 years ago, I don't know, maybe it was no different. But you you really seem to have found a nice balance between, you know, spending spending the summers in, in British Columbia and then heading out to the North Island mm-hmm. or South Island, wherever you're at in, in New Zealand and just kind of living your best life, playing your golf. Um, sounds pretty darn. Oh good. yeah, no, it, you know it's it's it's. I love it. Yeah, I I um, hope I can do it forever. But I mean, you know, I mean, but when I do speaking engagements and stuff too, I you know I like to point out to the audience, you know, and I said, yeah, I'm going to show you a bunch of shots here tonight, and I said, and I said, you, if you look at the, you know the show, you you might get the idea that. You know, every day is a bluebird day and fabulous clear water and stuff. I said, don't don't kid yourself. I mean, there's times when you know I'm beating the bush on the west coast of Vancouver Island and going through the Devil's Club and hiking around canyons and not finding any steelhead at all. And you know, I look down at my my rod and reel and my camera and I and I'm, I'm thinking, how much can I sell this crap for? Uh, you know. So. <laughs> well, well, and how, and then, how and much? Sudden, did, you know, you, you how, go one more pool. 
And then you look down there, and there there are six bars of chrome thinning in the tail out. And, you know, some big event's about to happen, win, lose, or draw. You're Mm -hmm. never going to forget this next hour or so, or whatever. So, uh, you know, anyway, so you want to balance it out there a little bit. And I like like that. And I like to just be truthful with people. And um, Well, how much does that bother you with, with, like, I mean, social media wasn't a thing when you and I were growing up or even, even... 30 years ago when you're you're hitting the water you're the only person out there now it's all recorded there it's documented and and i think one thing that i struggle with is people look at instagram and facebook and they go well every day i'm catching 12 pound chrome you know trout or steelhead and it's like no we don't put up our failures on on social media. You know what I mean? Well, you kind of yeah. And that, the old saying is, "I hope your I hope your life is as good as it appears to be on Facebook." Um, well, I you know, yeah, I can see that. And I and people all of a sudden they identify some little stream, and the next weekend it's just loaded with people, or the lake is, or something. So there's been kind of a damaging thing there. Um, and I I'm kind of I'm pretty active on both on Facebook and instagram a little bit not so much on facebook that's kind of a, turned into a political bloodbath a little bit and uh so it, it, there's always kind of a negative violent i mean kind of a thing with that a little bit but i love instagram and and i don't know if it's just me or the people that i've attracted or the people i've chosen to follow or whatever but it's all positive you know there's no it's kind of an unwritten rule there's no politics yeah um it's just people putting out nice pictures and, you know, and a little information or something or whatever. So mm-hmm. all this stuff that I've, we're talking about, for, for example, tonight or whatever, um, every f- great place in the world I've ever been or whatever, uh, I've got, I've, it's on Facebook pretty much, or my four or 500 favorite shots. And it isn't about, they're not pictures of me holding fish up or anything. They're just pictures of great places. And I might say, and I might put a sentence or two with them about, you know, if you're in, going to fish, you know, Rock Creek or something. You want know, to stay at the Phillipsburg Inn there in Phillipsburg or something. Mm-hmm. So you kind of help people out, get an idea of kind of where to go or what the season will be. Well, I think um, I think as a photographer, I mean, obviously, that's kind of your wheelhouse. Instagram makes sense. Like, like Facebook is, it's different, right? I, and obviously, I realize they're the same company. But the thing I love about Instagram is it's just no explanation necessary. Here's the pick. Do with it what you will. Yeah, and um, and it's nice to put a little sentence or two with it, or talk, you know, clear air, or, you know, in the Brockies or something, or you know, the west, you know, west slope cutthroat, a picture of them, or you know, just little snippets like that. And and, and you know, I kind of came back, and um, I kind of, I remember I, one time I made a comment or something on a posting that you know, or, or talked to a friend, and I said, you know, when people are suffering so badly in the world, and the COVID thing was really taken off big time, um, you know, I kind of felt funny about you know pr- putting out these photos of these beautiful places and fish and you know all these people having fun all the time or whatever i just felt that was kind of a bad thing or you know I've, i had second thoughts about that and uh, an old college roommate um said to me she said um i, I live with actually my best last two years of school i had five women one was a girlfriend but i live with five women um in a big house in san jose and my grade points jumped right up. Actually, it was a much better atmosphere than living a bunch of guys. Anyway, but what she got a hold of me. She said, oh, no. She goes, this is exactly what the world needs right now. You know, something to look forward to or to, to take their mind off of, you know, all the difficulties that everyone's going through. 
Um, yeah. You know, and I think about that when I'm in the middle of some beautiful place, you know, here I'm, you know, having a nice time with friends and fishing or whatever. Well, you know, people are just on the bones of their ass struggling to live. And, you know, right. it's a little bit of a conflict, you yeah. know. Um, I hear you. It's you a know, first, much, first world problem, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, how to, how much time do you want to devote to help people and do things and or have, mm. or have fun on your own or whatever? And, you know, I can always kind of justify it like, you know, my wife at the time or girlfriends later because uh, I travel too much and I say, well, honey, you know, th- this is, that's what I do for a living. So I can always kind of justify it. But so, you know, uh, can line, I ask you, can I ask you a personal question? Have, sure. Have you, have you finally found your wheelhouse on that? Like somebody that appreciates what you want with your fly fishing and your photography and, and your travel. Cause that's, there's a lot to balance there. Oh yeah. Now that's, and that's the Achilles heel of it all. You know, so when people think you've got it made, um, you know, people say, Oh, you live this ideal life. You travel everywhere, da, 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 uh, make a living doing what you love to do. That's fine. But you know, I'll say, yeah, but I, but I go home to an empty house. You know, nobody, you know, there's no kid that says, dad, I love you. Or, you know, so I, I miss out, I've missed out on a lot of things. Um, but I've had some wonderful girlfriends and, uh, and I'm still, fr- I don't have bad endings. I'm still friends with them all. And now I'm, you know, badly in love with this gal in Portland. And, um, but we just have to kind of sort out, um, you know, a few things. So, um, anyway, so I'm, so I, so that's <laughs> like that. been madly uh, in love with a girl in Portland that, that really, well, well, that fits you know, this podcast really well. Have you got any crazy, and I, you must be sitting on a few, but have you got any crazy things that have happened to you in your time on, on the water? Like anything weird or wonderful, whether it's wildlife encounters or you won't believe this, but this actually happened? Well, not nothing, no, not really. I mean, I've had a lot of close encounters with, uh, you know, grizzly bears on the, for about 20 years, I, you know, put a lot of time on the Dean River. I used to float that with friends I did about 15 float trips down the Dean. Uh, then I, and then I hosted a couple of weeks, um, a year off for about 10 years at Nakia lodge. So, um, I would fish, you know, the bottom end of the river for a week or two and then helicopter up the top and run the whole thing. We had meet some other friends up there flying from Bella Coola. Um, but we'd be around grizzly bears, you know, lots. Um, so that was kind of exciting, but never anything, never really felt in danger um like you do you know if you're up in the bc rock i do a lot of time fishing up in the uh bc rockies now i like that in, you know especially july and august um and if you run a grizzly bears up there you better be ready with a bear spray or be able to climb a tree or something because you don't know what those bears are going to do they're you know they go from feast to famine to you know defending a moose kill to being hungry as a bear and but the bears on the coast, you know, they're all pretty laid back. They're kind of like golden retriever grizzly bears, really. You know, they've always got enough skunk cabbage or, you know, dead fish to eat or something. You know, they're just like Alaska. They're not, unless you really screw up, they're not, you're not in much danger there. I've never heard that before. Golden retriever grizzly bears. Actually, it's the first time I ever used that term. But I mean, I love um, that, that may be a little generous. <laughs> but I mean, they just don't, you know, they don't bug you they, you know they're they you know they're they're used to you being around there if you're up in alaska on those rivers and they've seen people like you before they see people all over the dean river and um there's been the odd incidents or something but um so they're least, not can like we, can we at least call them pitbull grizzly bears 
<laughs> Kills but you give them you give them a big burst. You don't do anything <laughs> to promote any problems and have keep a real clean camp. You know, you you always burn everything in the fireplace. Uh, you know, so there's no smells or anything. Or, or actually, what we do oftentimes it's fun. A friend of mine got me into this. There was a, we used to camp at this. Uh, we start our pool, uh, uh, start our floats out on a pool called uh, Giants Pool. We'd helicopter in there, and we just fished that for three or four days, or if it was good, maybe longer. Um, but there's a, a trail that kind of went right along the right through camp, right down the river, and the bears would use that all the time. So uh, when you want to relieve yourself there in the morning or after a few beers, you went out on that trail there and, you know, laid it down on the trail. And then you could sometimes you'd be out there fishing the pool. You see a bear walking down that trail. He'd come to that spot and he'd stop right there. And he'd kind of get off the trail and kind of walk around, you know, it's kind of like, oh, something's going, you know, hmm. so there's a method to the madness there. You know, I, I could talk to you all day because I know you're sitting on so many nuggets over here. I want you to. Yeah, I always look at. OK, between you and I, I look photographers to me are artists. They were you really are. So I want you to paint a picture. So sorry, I just knocked my mic. Describe your perfect day. So if it, this is your dream day, whether it's on a spring creek in New Zealand or you're on, you know, the Dean. Walk me through, paint us a picture, your dream day. What kind of fish are you chasing? What kind of flies are you throwing? What are you drinking at the end of the day? What, <laughs> what does that look like? Well, um, probably a nice day um, besides you know, the game and stuff. I mean, I, you know, I've already described that, playing a little golf and you know, going fishing and stuff in New Zealand. That's, I just love that. Um, but, you know, probably the last 20, 15, 20 years, we've, I fished the Copper River quite a bit. And that's what's my favorite of all the rivers up in the steelhead land. You know, now, of course, the steelhead um, fishing has crashed. That's why next September I'm going to switch to the Gas Bay Rivers uh, in Quebec and get back in Atlantic salmon. Um, but, uh, you know, we had so much fun up there with friends. We'd camp. We'd have a camp at Kilometer 30, uh, you know, all set up. And people, the same people would show up every year. Um, you know, so it's just like a little annual get together with all your best buddies. You know, and you have a nice breakfast in the morning, you put a little water master in and you float down the river and kind of cut up the river a little bit. Or sometimes you drive upstream or hike into places or whatever and uh, come back and then, have you know, have a nice dinner or whatever. And, of course, you know, alcohol is always involved a little bit. That's always a bit of a hazard, uh, you know. But um, anyway, so I would say skating, you know, the nice light spay rod, a seven, eight weight spay rod. I like that was about about the right if you caught fish like they did back in the 30s or something, you know, you probably want a heavier rod because you spend more time fighting fish. But when you're getting, you know, three, four, five fish a day, usual, that's kind of normal up there. Um, not now, but it was. And sometimes more. Um, you know, that's about the right way to line there. Nice seven, eight and a floating line. And I use a tip the odd time. Um, but... I, pretty much, if you know what you're doing, you can do quite a bit of damage there just with a floating line. And my favorite way to fish would be either with a, a dry fly, my a moose hair skater is a real popular pattern, or a big rubber spider that, you know, made a little gurgle across the surface and, you know, legs struggling. But actually, probably my favorite way to fish was with a, like a number two or number four stonefly nymph on a long leader, you know, like a 15 foot leader, which actually is, is about the right length for a spay rod anyway, no matter what you're fishing. Um, but um, it would give you when you're casting a predictable stick 
when you brought that up for a single spay, double spay, snap tea, whatever, that little, that stonefly would, you know, hit the water and sink a few inches while you're doing your load. And it would just give enough resistance that you just got predictable stick. So your cast just shot out there, you know, as easy as you were fishing a dry fly. And if you had a like a the normal kind of an upstream breeze, uh, you know, you have a dry fly a lot of times, you throw it out there and it gets blown upstream, you know, and then the first half of your drift or third of your drift, you're waiting, you know, you're dead drifting. You might take it, but not as well as a skating fly. You know, you're kind of half the cast is not very efficient. But when you're with a stonefly nymph, if that leader didn't quite turn over you know, all the way or, you know, not at all or whatever, that was okay because that thing just had more free time to sink. Anyway, then that make that just come across or just follow the contour of the bottom of the river, kind of, and then you could kind of jerk it and, you know, and visualize when you move your arm a little bit, you know, those rubber legs pulsating and, and uh, you know, so you, that was a really a nice way to fish. Also, one thing I like to point out to people um, is that, you know, you do your best not to harm the fish, you know, and, and so I I wrote something years ago, and it's been around and printed on shot you know, on the walls of uh, some fishing lodges. It's called leaving that fish the honorable foot. You don't drag them up on bounce them on the rocks and and you know I livelessly have them bounce on the sandy dirty rocks. You leave them a foot of water at least, and that way, and then you help each other land the fish. So you don't have to play the hell out of them to get them in the to exhaust them so they're belly up or something. So your buddy comes down, he drops his rod wherever it is, or I do. You walk up there, you know, leave it where you're going to start again when you want to go back and finish the pool. Walk up there, help the person land the fish, take a quick shot or something, photo, leave it in the water and never bang it around. Um, so, and what I like about fishing that stonefly now is that I would weight them with a little bit of lead on each side of the, not on top, not on the bottom to close the gape up, but on the sides, and then you had a down-dyed hook, like a big giant 3671 uh, Tiemco hook. They don't make those anymore, but uh, Murado does. Anyway, so it has a down die. So anyway, when you put that on there, that fly would, would go through the swing upside down, so point up. So what it does is it never snags up on anything if you let it go into the shallows a little bit or, or a stick out there or a rock or whatever. It doesn't get dulled by, by the point hitting things. But more importantly, you always get, almost always, uh, that nice top jaw hookup on a steelhead. You know, and that's the best place to hook them. The worst place is the lower jaw or the dreadful tongue hookup, which can often be fatal and must be incredibly painful for the fish. So I like fishing, and I do that with trout, a lot of trout nymphs, too. I make them so they fish up the point up, so you get a, a less damaging hookup. Yeah, uh, and so. one of the worst things that I like to point out, too, and they're really popular, all those little stinger hooks. You know, I, you look at that, and not only are they way back there, but they get they work great. There's no question about that. And they slip in, they, they hook up beautifully because they're small, and they slide right in there. But they're a lot more damaging to the fish because they rip all that torque and tear you know, on the 10 12 pound tippet maximum tippet usually um you know they rip and tear they rip and damage the fish and i talked to adam tavender uh years ago about that and he you know owned the nakia lodge for a number of years and has looked in down the gullets of thousands of caught steelhead over the years he would no one has looked down the mouth of a steelhead more than he has um and he said um and we talked about it, he said uh by far uh the most fatal hookups on fish which aren't always you know that i mean they're not 
that common, but you know, they're enough to upset you, um, are with those stinger hooks. You know, they're way out there in the back. They, they, they're small, they rip, they tear, and they also hook them deeper in the mouth. They get back there in a gill raker, and then all of a sudden there's a lot of blood coming out, and that fish isn't going to live. So, if, mm. so anyway, I have a, you know, I, just, I, I like to point that out to try and save what few steelhead are left. Yeah. Um, after all they've been through with the fish farms and the sea lice and the commercial netting, you know, set for salmon interception, people snagging them in the lower umquat or something. Um, anyway, I feel sorry for steelhead, and I kind of reached a point where I don't think I'm going to fish for them anymore because I just don't. I just feel bad. I mean, they've had such a rough go. I mean, in the habitat, you know, and de- damage with logging practice and stuff. Every time, the last few years, every time I hook one, I'm always just going, oh, I'm so sorry. I just want to unhook you. I just want to, you know, I kind of go through this little whiny crap. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> that's enough. I've caught enough of those. Yeah, no, um, that, ma- that makes, David, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think. I'm switching back to Atlantic salmon. I've liked that in Iceland and in Norway and Russia. And hmm. uh, I'm going to, I'm going to focus on, which I haven't fished, the Gas Bay, the Clear, the Bonaventure, the uh, Cascopedia uh, and all that stuff. I want to touch that on something that you talked about uh, more than once in our chat here. And um, leader, you mentioned Maxima. And it's funny, every time you go there, like I, I, I love Maxima. I use it all the time. And we have all these new, um, fluorocarbon tippet material oh. but talk to me about what what you like to use i got so let me let me cover that i've got something to say about that um you know you can tie i mean i've had people up there friends of mine they show up and they have uh you know the steelhead fishing they've got the latest uh, uh high super strong fluorocarbon and a 16 pound test and it looks like about Oh, six or eight pound maxima, probably, or something like that. You know, that's the difference. And so that's terrible stuff to use. I mean, sure, it works as strong and all that kind of stuff, but they're not tippet shy. And the more, when you use those skinny, uh, mono, skinny fluorocarbons on steelhead, you know, and out there and they fight and they roll and whatever, it marks them up so much more. That's you're putting all that pressure on a little small piece, you know, much half the diameter piece of nylon or fluorocarbon. So, you want Maxima. I think almost everybody, all the people that really know what they're doing, they use Maxima. It's fatter, and I want it fatter. I don't want to mark those fish up. Um, and it knots beautifully, and it, and, you know, and it doesn't deteriorate, really. It, it, I put, when I'm on my Maxima spools, I put a, or, or almost any of my tippet spools, no matter what they are, I put a nice rubber band around the outside that actually covers the entire spool, so you pull the line out, but I mean, it never gets oxygen, it never gets any oxygen, never gets daylight, never gets any water in there. So you can make monofilaments or any last way longer. So you don't have to worry about that problem. I can, um, and I'll, also, tell you, I'll tell you a funny story, David, about that. I, I like everyone's on this um, fluorocarbon thing and trust me, I get it. It sinks. I know it works, but I will tell you that I have had days on very spooky fish that Maxima, just regular, regular Maxima in six or eight pound. Um, I love the way it knots. I love the fact it doesn't wind up and get all these weird, um, you know what I'm talking about. It it, it looks like yeah. a wind knot. I don't even know how to describe it, but it gets all, it gets all flustered. And for me, the Maxima is, yeah, I use it all the time. Yeah. And um, I, I carried, I usually, like eight pound test. So when I, I'm fishing, I, sometimes I fish on the West Coast of New Zealand, we fish where the rivers 
these bigger rivers go right into the right into the Tasman Sea, and they always people always refer to them as sea run browns. Well, they're they may run a little bit during a certain time of year, but basically they're estuary browns. They just kind of go in and out with the tides. You, you fish a low tide, um, and you go at low tide, and the river has a good draw to it, and all of a sudden the tide starts coming in. And you start having a little wave come up the pool. And then it, and then your then your swing continues after the wave passes. Anyway, those fish in there they take the free ride up with the incoming tide, and I use eight pound maxima, and uh, that's a, just a nice, perfect size for you know three to seven pound, eight pound fish, um, and swing and and swing it. And anyway, so I like I still use maxima, but the the stuff that I use now mostly, um, I think would be straw. And that's made in Germany, and I know some of the top guides in New Zealand. They really like it, and um, I like it. Um, okay, so and what, I still what's have, that I, called, David? Straw. It's called straw. S T R O F T. Okay. Um, yeah, that's a really you know some of I, I think that's really excellent stuff. And here's the other thing that people don't get um, a lot of times um, with using different tippets and stuff is that you want. When when you're when we're fishing the Henry's Fork or the you know or the Bighorn or all the or the you know uh, Madison not the Madison but you know the big smooth tailwater type fisheries in the Missouri, um, you kind of the habit is to kind of fish downstream fly first drift, and that's what because what the, the advantage of that is is because the the fly comes into the fish's window first, and you have a much better chance to fool them because. What people don't get is the real killer on smooth water is tippet squiggle, and you can't get rid of it. I mean, it's I mean, there's all people do all kinds of different things, but generally nothing really much works. It might work just for one cast. You put some mud on it or something, but uh, but generally that's why we fit. That's why when I'm fishing like a pond and something in New Zealand, I can get fish not too fairly not a lot easier if they're coming towards me. If they're going away or across. I can't hardly catch them because with a dry fly because there's a squiggle on the surface and you can't get rid of that. And I've talked to uh, Garth Jones, who runs that program there and when I was fishing in Wales uh, a couple of years ago, and I got the tour of the factory and stuff. And I've also talked to Simon Godworth about it. I can, can't you make a, a small tippet, you know, five, six, you know, the common sizes, five X, six X, you know, uh, or seven um, that sinks. And they go, no, you can't. Um, uh, because you, it won't sink until it's about one X, you know, because it just it just sits on top of the surface. And actually, uh, what, hap what 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 is actually a slight advantage to using monofilament it, environmentally, it kind of makes sense too. It doesn't it doesn't sit there for 50 years. Um, is that monofilament will actually absorb a little bit of water, so it'll actually sink do a little better job sinking than fluorocarbon. And people always think, oh, fluorocarbon sinks. Well, it doesn't. And you can look at it. And um, now they, they, there are probably a couple products. Just a little snippet here. I bought this stuff years ago. I think it was called, uh, you know, you got, you got gink for floating, you know. Then they had a product called zinc for Z sinking. Zinc. Oh, you're talking so, my language now. You're going back here. So, so now I, so I take a drop of this stuff. I'm on this little pond in New Zealand. And I put it on my, um, you know, the first two feet or the tippet. And I'm putting a dry fly out there. And I drop it out in the right out in front of me just to see it on the water. And as soon as it hit the water, it had it just made this big reaction, like a chemical reaction um, to the water. And it like a foot on each side, like some magic thing just 
shot off that line for a foot on each side of the tippet. And then I thought, what the hell? And then I read the label and it said, avoid contact with skin. Well, <laughs> that's the last time I ever used that crap. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, imagine if, I mean, you know, you use that all your life or something, you'd end up on 60 minutes, you know, going, well, they, they told me it was harmless. And you're trying to put two words together. I don't want that crap on me. Um, you know. <laughs> you're killing, you're killing me, man. I, I love it. I <laughs> well, love that's it. Just the truth. <laughs> you want the truth? You can't handle the truth. <laughs> I, I can, I, mean, I can handle it. I just, I just want you to lay it out there like a nice cast. <laughs> um, so anyway, so I, I use, I probably, I still use, I like fluorocarbon too. I use that, you know, I real fluorocarbon is nice for certain things and, um, but uh, generally, I like that straw. You know, it's all monofilament, and uh, get those big guide spools. You know, it's a bigger, long, longer spool, uh, so it comes off with less coiling and everything, and it straightens out beautifully. So I, I, that's that's my favorite, and a bunch of people I know that I respect, they, they like that too. But you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of comparable stuff there. But uh, I wouldn't necessarily always just go for. The, the the latest greatest fluorocarbon yeah. you know right. monofilament and maxima especially for larger things uh, if you don't mind me maxima. asking when you say maxima is it is it clear is it is it maxima um what's the green one is it the green uh, i usually um i like the green because i think the uh the the clear is probably a little bit shiny and sometimes that sparkles a little bit when you put stuff like that over a, a clear water and a trout you know they get a little flash off that a little bit and I'll tell you another thing. What did we do? Anyway, so uh, the green or the chameleon—they're both fine. Um, but I think they—it kind of hides in the water. I use that chameleon. I fish lakes here in BC a little bit. Um, but another thing that I'm doing now, more and more, um, just to be sneaky. And you know, one thing I've about—I know I come back to my first love going down to New Zealand. But you learn so much down there. You learn when you see the reaction of fish. Not you know what they what they can see and what they can hear. And how to walk softly, and you know, and and what kind of if they're in a rip, you know, you cross the rip, the pools and the riffles, so it kills the sound, kind of like wind and that sort of thing. But uh, we die the first ten or twelve feet of a fly line, um, dark brown, or you know, I've, I've used brown and black or whatever, and it kind of just turns out almost black. You know what's funny? But, you know, is I was anyway. just I was just gonna throw this out there to you, so. I have a, I have like a, it's almost like a bonefish line. It's, it's, it's powder blue and it's a weight forward shooting head. And I take my black marker and I take the, I, I make it black for, for probably 15 feet. And I know, yeah. I know it sounds weird, but I think it helps. Oh, hell yeah. I mean, you can, you can see it there in New Zealand. I, I've had it where I'd, be, I'd have some big fish in a back channel or something and years ago and I'd be casting to it and all of a sudden it had enough. It got freaked or spooked out and it starts to you know, run back out the neck out and wants to go back out in the river again. I throw down my fly line and it's like a gate. It won't go underneath it. It goes to that thing and stops and turns around. It's all freaked out. Um, so anyway, but when you have a, a colored line and, and I, and it's a lot easier to dye them really than to use that marker. I've done what, that too. What do you but use for I, dye, David? I use RIT dye, just RIT fabric dye. And just, and you don't need very much of that. Just to, you know, you get, I got that powder form actually, but it, it all works. But the little, little capsules that you buy for dyed fabric. Anyway, you just boil some water 
and put a little teaspoon of that in there. And you don't need to have a big jug. You know, if you're going to dye the front end of a couple of fly lines, you know, just an inch or two in the bottom of a milk jug or something, or yogurt container, something you're going to throw away afterwards. Um, and let it just sit in there for, you know, well, what's the rush? Leave it in there all night if you like. But it'll pretty much pick the dye up within about 20 minutes or at the, you know, or 30 or something like that. No, don't put your fly line in a boiling water. So it'll naturally cool down just a hair when you, you know, stir it around with the dye there. Then I'll put a little vinegar in there. That's the old vineyard uh, thing out of England trick. Um, just it adds a little acidic or something makes it take a little bit better. Um, anyway, and let it and let it just sit in there. And then if I have a leader on the thing, you know, um, I'll throw the leader in there too. Um, and uh, so the leader gets in the monofilament leaders just take pick up the dye beautifully. So you've got a black leader, and you've got a black or, or dark brown. Uh, 10 or 15, 12 feet. You don't want to do too much because then you won't be able to see when to mend. So ideally, the ideal lines I use for everything now kind of all about, you know, they're always, so you can see what if you needed to mend your line or what, where your line is or what's going on there. But yeah. uh, the front end, the front, you know, if it's a four weight, I'm not going to cast usually that much further past the fish. I might just die eight or 10 feet. And then maybe a five weight, 10 or 12, and then maybe 12 or 13 or something on a six weight because you might be bigger water, bigger, longer drifts, deeper. You know, you might throw a little further past the fish. But you watch and you can put that over fish and it doesn't bother them because it's an earthy color. It looks just like some weed or something they're normal. It's something they're used to. Right. Um, that, no, that, so makes, that makes perfect sense to me. And I, I've been doing that for, for years and taking a little uh, a little slack from buddies. Like, where's your line out? Because usually, usually floating lines are highly visible, right? There's crazy colors. Sometimes I always figured, okay, if it's blue, trout's looking up. It looks like the sky. It makes sense. But I also, Oh, I've argued that with old timers years ago a lot of times. Like, what do you mean? You look up at the sky. No, no, they knew. They knew. Yeah. They, yeah. Now I'm one of them, you know. Um, it's, you want to just keep an earthy color I and agree. even as it's it certainly stands out there, but it's, but it fits the environment, you know, it doesn't yep. bother them. And that's what you learn down there in New Zealand is, uh, when you see exactly the reaction to the fish, you know, and you go through the process of trying to catch one. And then, you know, then after you screw it up or something, or somebody does, or something happens, and then you have a little postmortem about, you know, what, what happened there, what, what, what maybe was the problem. Um, so do it's a real, it's just an ongoing we, education. Do we overthink this stuff? Do we overthink it? Yeah. Oh, well, no, I just think it's just a natural progression of knowledge. Um, you know, just like looking at how they react to flies, you know, it's, it's not only do they take it, but it's actually the speed at which they take it, you know, how far away they commit to it. And I'll tell you one thing that I love, and it was a big leg up in New Zealand for years. It's because they're they a little slow getting off the mark up there. They were, for decades, it was always the traditional, you know, Grenville's Glory and Kochi Bondu and all these old traditional kind of English patterns. But I would go down there and I'd put, I'd tie these little foam, one of my favorite flies actually anywhere in the world is uh, a little foam spider. You know, it's a little block of eighth inch ephazote from Rainey's. That's the best stuff. It, It'll collapse nicely. It's not too hard. Some of some of those foams are way too hard, um, and they don't. They'll spin on the hook, and they just you can't work with them very well. So the, the Ephazote from Rainey's is um, perfect. So it collapses on the on the hook nicely, but not too much. 
and it won't, um, you know, it won't or it won't spin on the hook or when it wears out or whatever. Then I put some rubber legs on there. You'll see all these things we talked about. You'll see these patterns on my Instagram postings. You know, they're, they're all well represented. Every fly pattern I really like. Um, anyway, you throw that over fish, and you know the rubber leg thing. To them, that's bug. They know that right now. And they commit way further. They don't come up and look at it. They just come up and get it because it, they, to them, they understand right away, you know, that's not a little fluff. Sometimes fish come up to things that look like a fly, and then and they realize it's not really a fly or something. But with me, put rubber legs on stuff, that really perks them up. So I like those, especially in a, mm. a size 16. And if you want to take it really extra at the next step, which I'm doing now because I just realized that Tiemco is making a, 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 a a, a Tiemco 100, you know, their standard dry fly hook. Right. They make them in black now, same price. Oh, yeah. Um, and so when you put a little black rubber legs on that and a little foam body, um, you know, it just looks like another leg hanging down. So the smartest fish in the world isn't going to see a, a, any kind of a shine coming off the hook or anything. I am but all, you still, all about the black hook. Yeah. And then you, and then you, but you have to put a little bit of a, um, a little bit of a uh, indicator, not indicator, but a little bit of a wing or something on top. Because if you throw a black fly out there, um, it disappears. Just like your fly line, like a dyed fly line, you know, you can't even see it. You throw it out there, it's just gone. Um, so the same thing with a black fly. So you need a little something there, a little grizzly hack on it might help a little bit. Or I put a little bit of, a little bit of gray or you know, kind of a poly wing thing. Mm. Uh, keep it small. I'm going to throw um, anyway. That, I'm going to throw a quote at you that I read somewhere. And it might be in one one of your calendars. I would yeah. have I would have loved to have worked more, but I never had the time. <laughs> That's right. That's actually in the right now the calendar that I'm just finishing shipping out. Um, that, that's that's one of the quotes. I would have liked to have worked more. I just never had the time. Um, and then I always I also put one in there from Tony Bennett. And he said, you know. I love what I, I I love what I've been doing all these years, and I'm get and I'm still getting away with it. Uh, I like that. <laughs> well, years ago, I just love that. Years ago, I remember I was I was watching Larry King, and he said um, he was interview interviewing a Winona Judd, you know, from the Judd's you know famous duo, mother daughter's duo, and um, he was saying you know about, you know, about life and the traveling and the, all this business and stuff and you know, trying to live a normal life. And she said, and I use this as a quote, she goes, she goes, normal? What's normal? Normal is just some setting on a washing machine. <laughs> that's that's exactly right. Here's another one for you. If you know you're loved, you exist in fertile soil. No kidding. And um, yeah, so um, yeah, so I've used stuff like that too. And often, and oftentimes I'm speaking to somebody actually. Okay. I got one. <laughs> I got one more for you. Personality can okay. open, personality can open doors, but only character can keep them open. Oh yeah, that's true. You know, a lot of people are outgoing and they, you, know, you like them right off the bat and then pretty soon you realize, you know, they're kind of jerks or something, but that's true. You gotta, you gotta follow through and be an honest, decent person. And, uh, you know, and then, then, then you and think long-term, you know, you, when you're a young kid, young buck or something, it's like you get a little carried away on yourself. But, you know, pretty soon you realize that just be yourself and tell the truth. Mm, and, um, yeah, you know, you never right. have to, it's like Dale's saying, or if you always tell the truth, you never have to remember what you said. We're chatting um, tonight with David Lumbroughton. David is a writer, photographer, publisher, uh, spends, basically splits his time between British Columbia and New Zealand um, guided for many, many years in Northern California, Alaska, Oregon, 
the Skeena spent a lot of time in the Yellowstone and his fly fish basically his way around the world and your your calendar I've, I have to thank you because your calendar has brought a lot of joy personally to me um, and I know many others let's talk about the calendar that you do your fly fishing dreams calendar um, oh it's fun when and, did you know, that and, and, when did that start I started doing my own calendar about 1988 and I did a British Columbia calendar for a couple of years and then I was in a bookstore and I saw some fishing calendar there that a fly fishing or, or, or just a fishing calendar but you know it said somebody on the front cover wearing hip boots and a red shirt and holding a fly rod with a reel up up and it was just the whole thing was just you know nuts you know bad i got a hold of the publisher and i sent him some sample photos and i said you know i think i can do a better job than this so that's how it all started and um anyway and so it just took off from there and um and, and also, and at the top of the calendar now, I call it Fly Fishing Dreams, and it's where, uh, where the love of fly fishing and photography meet. And that's exactly the truth. I love photography every bit as much as fishing. It just goes, it's a perfect match for me. Um, so um, I love that, that part. So I put that together, and then what I have done with the travels and stuff is that, um, you know, I try and match it up a little bit. So if there's a shot there and you know, uh, June or July, it's probably going to be about, you know, Henry's Fork or Idaho or Montana or something. And August would be, you know, the Dean or, you know, West, chasing uh, West Slope Cutthroat. I love doing that. Um, up in the BC Rockies. Um, September would be, um, you know, the steelhead thing up in the Skeena country. Uh, um, probably in, in the future, it'll probably be more Atlantic salmon there in Gas Bay. Um, October could be the Umpqua down the Oregon or whatever. And then the winter, you know, the winter colder months uh, would be, um, you know, New Zealand, you know, know, where you want to be at that time, January, you know, or or Argentina or something, November, December, January, February, March, right in there. And springtime by BC lakes or something. So kind of make it kind of season sensitive in a way. So you kind of follow the thing there. And I try to include good information and, you know, some fly pack. You know, I like to have a big scenic on the page usually with kind of a small human just for proportion and a kind of a landscapey thing. So you get an idea. Uh, and for, for photographers out there, what you want to make sure it's nice to shoot up river. You get more inform you put more information into the picture. You can, you, you want to have both banks show in the, in the photo. So, you know, the size of the river, otherwise you don't have any idea how big the river is. And then you get the landscape, the mountains, you know, what the scene looks like and the terrain, the, the gradient anyway, and then have somewhere in the, a small picture probably or, or or behind the grid you know a nice big fish or something and then also have some fly patterns that kind of fit with the scene there so you get a lot of information there um anyway so i like doing that and that uh, and people generally I, they when they buy them um they buy them once they start buying them, they just buy them every year yeah. and they keep them they keep them as kind of a reference point when they want to go someplace they can kind of go yeah they want to revisit that little information about going steelhead fishing or, mm-hmm. or, you know, the great way to tie the pellboring done or, you know, with razor foam wings or something for the Henry's fork or, you know, so people or rock Creek or anywhere, you know, what to do if you want to go to the chalk streams of England or something. That's one thing so I've learned. Try and put, I've learned from your picks is, is that whole scale thing. So, you know, like you said, both sides of the river, usually aqua blue or beautiful waters. And then, and, and just that little, the scale of another of a person, but all, the person is not the subject. It's bigger than the person, and uh, yeah, I, I, I love I love what you're doing. 
I, I want to ask you a philosophical question, David. Uh oh. Yeah. <laughs> here we go, man. We're going to open up this can of worms. Is there something you'd like to change about our pastime? So, in other words, is there something you think that we could be doing better as a group, fly fishers? Or is there something that kind of irks you about what's happening right now? Well, um, well, too much. Well, the internet, of course, when it, when people point out, you know, they have a big fishing day on the some river or something, and and you know they want to show everybody and show the fish, whatever. That is really quite damaging. It brings so much so much you know uh, notice to that river so quickly that um you know it gets overrun you know and uh, you certainly see that a lot of places heavily fish montana whatever and so people need to be more quiet about it um also always no matter what the regs are always press the barbs down um uh, nothing's worse than uh than um you know catching a fish you know i won't i won't fish rivers that have fish that have a lot of sore mouths and stuff I just makes me feel like I'm hassling wildlife, um, you know. So it's about learning how to fish, you know, how to love it more and fish a little less, maybe. I mean, that might be it. And kind of taking a bigger picture there and share it. You know, the you know, to me, uh, another quote I put in years ago, I believe it totally, you know, all the stuff about being a great fisherman or something. The best fishermen in the world are the people who enjoy it the most and share it the best because it actually does the world good. All these, when people go through all the stressful stuff of, you know, jobs and COVID and, you know, all the political business, whatever, boy, what you really need to reboot yourself. You know, you go out there and you're by yourself on a little trout stream someplace, you know, the whole world goes away. There's very, there's an old saying there, very few problems in life that a good fishing trip can't help. Uh, I thoroughly believe that. And it also, it's a great source of fitness. You know, when I hike into streams up in the BC Rockies or, or you know, down, down New Zealand rivers or whatever, you know, you get, you stay in shape. And um, so there's a lot of side benefits that just come out of, and, and, and from fishing and fishing, if, if you do it enough of it, you know, you realize it's not the be all end all, it's the theme. It's a theme of why we're out there. Um, so that's the way I kind of, you know, I think you yeah. probably look at it if you do it enough. I, I, just takes I, you to do it. I love how you uh, verbalize that. And as someone that's been doing it for so long, what's, and this, this wasn't on the question list that I sent you, but I'm, I'm curious from somebody that's been doing this for so long, what's the single biggest change you see now? Like all of a sudden fly fishing is kind of in vogue. It's like, um, you know, spending time in oh, the quality outdoors. It's, it's where we want to be. What's this, what's the biggest change you've seen over the years? Um, well, I think a lot of people, you know, they, one thing I, that always kind of gets me a little bit is a lot of people, they, they kind of don't go through the normal process of kind of learning things. You know, if you're, if you're going to take somebody fishing or something or start them out, um, you know, I was, when I've done that a little bit or helped somebody, you go to some place where they can kind of make a cast and then maybe start them out with a wet fly swing, which often isn't very productive. It can be at times, but you know, they have a tension on the line, they feel things, they hook almost every single fish. Um, it's a, and it's kind of a nice way to begin. But, you know, you get a lot of people, you'll see them all the times down the boats in the Missouri River, on the Bow River up here in Alberta or something, where, you know, somebody doesn't know how to fish or they're just getting into it. And then the guide hooks them up with a big giant, you know, float or corky thing or something. And then, you know, eight feet down, he's got a San Juan worm or whatever. 
So they just float down the river and they learn to fish kind of like that. And that's productive and that's why they're doing it and stuff. But, you know, they never really learn how to cast very well or, you know, they don't, they didn't kind of go through the steps, you know, to appreciate things. They just went for the meat and, um, you know, they did, they didn't, and it slows up their development to really become a finesse fisherman where they, they realize that maybe the best way to fish isn't necessarily the most productive way. It's the way that you get the most enjoyment. You know, so some people take it, of course, to all kinds of extremes. I only fish dry flies or only do this. That's fine. They're just redefining what it is that, about fishing that they like the most. So it's not necessarily about how to catch the most fish. It's how to enjoy it the most. You know, just to get people's attention on something or a posting or something about a fly pattern. I'll say, I'll say nymphs are for losers. And I'm a loser about 40% of the time. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so you, you got to get a book a little bit there. I love it. I'm probably a loser 80% of the time. Yeah. So, so, you know, it, it, I'd like to give them, a, we always try, you know, we always like to get them on drives whenever possible, but, you know, sometimes they're just not looking up or, you know, it's not much going on. So you go down a little bit. Hey, hey let me give you a, a little tip on a, the world's greatest indicator um, that um, I've been using for the last 20 years, I guess. And um, it, it it's hard to describe without, well, without a diagram or, I think you, you people can visualize this a little bit. You know, when you go through duty free and they you buy a bottle of scotch or something, and they put that little plastic netting around it so you don't break it against the next bot, the second bottle you bought uh, when you're going through customs. Or yeah, also I know exactly see, what you're talking about. Yeah, you'll see you'll see them go through. Um, um, you'll see them on on, on um, Asian pears, you know, in stores. That's often common. They have them. They got these little little netty things around them. Anyway, you want to grab those things and throw them in your vest. So, so now when I'm fishing up some stream or some river, you know, I've got a dry fly on or whatever, and I can't get the fish to come up in New Zealand or any, anywhere. And um, I want to, and I'll, but I know he's going to, he's feeding or whatever, and I want to put a nymph on. So all I do is I whip out a little chunk of that stuff, and I do a simple, like a little double loop. You know, you double it over your fingers and make a loop kind of deal. Uh, it's, it's real simple. Anyway, and you stick a little chunk of that in there. And then with my Swiss, you do it with your fingers, fingernails, or with a Swiss army knife, um, you know, just trim it down to size. There's no point in having any bigger than it needs to be. So if you got a little small nymph, you can use a really small piece, especially if it's an, un, if it's an unweighted nymph, just to see it where it's going to line up with the fish, it might be the size of a BB. Um, and then, and then, and anyway, so, and then, I can put that on really quickly. And then our joke is, if you have an audience or you're fishing with your buddy, usually um, I'll take my, when I want to go back to a dry fly, I just take the tippet or whatever part, of, whatever part of the leader I put that on. It depends on the size of the fly, of course, and how deep you're going. I just give it a stretch and it just disappears. It just cuts right through it all. It, it's gone. And there's no goofy part in your tippet or no squiggle, no permanent bend in the, anything. So it's for putting, for going back and forth between a dry and a nymph quickly, easily. Uh, that stuff is fabulous and it's free, and um, you can get a lifetime supply. You know, so I went through, last time I went through customs, I said, "Can I have a couple extra of those those little baggy things?" Oh, sure, you know, and they give you, you know, tw- five of them or six of them, and you know, and, I, and then I just hand them out to friends. David, but, um, do you anyway, color that up? Do you color that up, or do you leave it no. white? white? I don't. I leave them white. Okay. Um, and if you're fishing in real super smart fish, um, you don't, you know, especially, I mean, I'm curing everything off of 
what I've learned down in New Zealand, you don't use colored, you don't use lime green, you don't use hot pink, all that stuff that we've done years ago in North America. You use that white, and it's kind of off white actually. Uh, and sometimes you can even dull it down a hair with a little bit of dirt off the bank or something. It's the same color. It looks just like a little foam bubble coming down the stream. You, and, and if you've got foam bubbles coming down the stream, you know, which is often the chow line, you know, your little foam line, that's where all the surface food goes. The fish are always watching those things extra close. You put that indicator out there with the, with the nymph on there, you don't take your eye off it because you'll never find it again. You know, you can't, but so that's, so you're you're yeah, talking about like those 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 Asian apple pears that we see with the white mesh, right? Yeah, mm. yeah. Just take it, take one of those things. Just mm. I just pull a little chunk out, stick it, sticking out the inside pocket a little bit. I just rip off of you know a little chunk of that, you know, and it could be three or four bars and an X or two, or it depends how big the nymph is. Slip that into that knot, tie it down. Don't squeeze it too tight; it'll cut right through it. Um, anyway, and then as soon as you hook a fish, it's gone. It, 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 you know, the, the weight of the fish just cuts it right off. Uh, and certainly if you snagged up on something, it would come off real quickly. But it's just so thin, fragile, it just disappears. There's nothing to it. It would break down instantly within it. It wouldn't take long for, I mean, you don't even see it again. It just cuts right through it. Um, so anyway, so that's a, that's I, a wonderful I love it. indicator. It's free. It's easy. And, um, Anyway, I highly recommend it. And yeah, so, it's free. It appeals to me. I'm when, a German when, mother. While we're on the topic of gear, <laughs> is there a go-to fly rod for you? Is there a brand or a size? Is it, you know, like a weight? What's your regular go-to? Yeah, no, that, yeah, I definitely have opinions on that. And that's one of the nice things when I, you know, during that six or seven, eight years, I impersonated a fishing guide. Um, was 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 kind of nice about it because people would always have the latest rods. You pick them up and give them a wiggle, give them a try. Can you say, "Can I try your rod?" And or help with their casting and demonstrate a little bit. So anyway, but all of a sudden you got it, it made you a better caster because you instantly got cl clued into this rod needs this. This rod's a little slower. This rod's a little faster. And you know you adjust your stroke and the speed of your stroke to match the rod. So it was really quite the education, you know, of all the rods. Um, but uh, now, in the last you know 20 years or so, I've got a set of um, Winston uh, BT uh, BXT BX BX2s, you know boron twos. Anyway, they're a nice medium rod, nice medium action rod, and that's kind of been my main rods I've used for all these years, and they're all kind of a match, you know, like you know the 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 five weight is just a little bigger version of the four weight, and the six weight just a little bigger, heavier version of the five weight. So they all kind of have the same action. But what you get with a, a little bit softer rod, which might not be the easiest rod for a real break, real beginners, you know, they're just starting out, they probably could benefit a little bit from a stiffer rod because they can feel it, feel it load a little better. But, um, and the worst would be a big sloppy bamboo rod would be really hard to learn how to cast on. But the medium action rods, They'll still cast just as far as a stiff rod, but they also, more importantly, they cast short beautifully. You know, you don't need a big long line to load them up. Um, and um, so I like that because a lot of the rod, a lot of the fishing you're fishing, you know, you've got a fish spotted somewhere, they're 25 feet, 30 feet away, or 40, or, you know, that's, that's just perfect water. That's why those Winston rods are designed so nice. And a lot of times, some friends will come down and they'll have a real stiff rod, and we'll be out in the yard there in front of my cottage. 
and, and you know, casting or something or shooting should have a drink in the evening. And um, they'll well, so they'll they'll say, you know, I just don't I don't like this rod very much. It just doesn't I have a hard time casting or whatever. And it's a real you know, almost always it's a real stiff rod. And the rod says, you know, five weight or says four weight or something. And you put that in and they have that's what they have on there. The, the rod that the line that's recommended. And, the, and I make one two casts and I instantly can tell you that's not the right line. And I go and I put a five weight on it. And all of a sudden it softens the rod up a little bit. And this rod that they didn't really care for much becomes their favorite rod because it loads beautifully. And, you know, I mean, so just because a rod says a four or five or whatever the number on there, that doesn't necessarily ring true. Try when you have rods, try different line weights on them just for fun. Just, you know, you wouldn't jump them too much, but one up usually makes a difference. It makes a kind of a stiff, uninteresting rod, kind of a decent rod often. Yeah, so I, I, like I agree 100 percent. I, I always I don't I don't want to say always, but usually I go up one weight. Oh, one weight. Oh, I, yeah. Were, really? you, were you going more than one? Oh, 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 I thought you mean a one-weight rod for a second there. No, I just go about one. Yeah, I don't, I've never seen much. I've, I've seen it where you could jump a two, but that's a rarity. Yeah, no, I'm, um, I'm, saying, throw, I'm saying throw a six on a five. Yeah, that's often the case. So it all depends. Now, some of them just match up perfectly on my Winston's. Um, a four-weight is, a, you know, the four-weight is perfect on the four. The five is perfect on the five. The six perfect on the on the six, but you know, it just depends on different rod companies. And, and but I'll tell you a rod that has really become my all time favorite rod ever. And I, ha I got, I went into, I was in uh, Montana, Bo I, you know, I spend the, I do my U.S. counter shipping out of Bozeman. So it's always a great time to visit friends and go shopping and pick up all the fly time materials and stuff. Anyway, I was in George Anderson's shop about probably about four, five years ago now, I bet. And, I just looked at his rod rack and, you know, it's a good time to wiggle things real quick, kind of keep track of what's coming up in the market. Most of them don't appeal to me at all. They're real stiff. Anyway, I looked at this rod. It was kind of a, kind of a yellowy green color or whatever. And I, and it had an all cork handle and I thought, Oh, it's a cane rod. They got a cane rod in here. So I picked that up and you know, it wasn't a cane rod. It was a real low modulus uh, graphite rod. Um, and, I, I wiggled it a little bit and I just, you know, right off the bat, I'm getting this one. It's just a beautiful soft flex. It weighs 1.7 ounces and it's made by Douglas Rod Company. It just started out, I guess, about five or six years ago. Um, it's called Upstream and they make about uh, four or five Upstream models. And a lot of them are, you know, seven foot and this and six and a half or eight, you know, whatever. Not really of much importance to me, but the, the biggest one of that line is an eight foot eight, four piece, eight foot eight for a four weight. And it loads, and a four weight is exactly the perfect line for it. And, I, and you can just, it loads right to the handle. Every time I show that to somebody, um, they, they just have, they say, I got to have it. And I, Took it out. I was visiting, um, you know, my buddy there who endorses my calendar a little bit, Tata McGuane. I go out and she's got a nice ranch with a really nice river through it. Um, anyway, so I go there and visit him a little bit in the summers often. Anyway, I said, try this rod. And oh, my God, did he just his, he couldn't believe it. So right away we had to order one. Um, anyway, so that's his favorite rod, too. But for little spring creeks or for um, 
um, you know, little cutthroat rivers in the BC Rockies or any little small stream. It's just, a, I, I almost like, I like the rod so much, love the rod so much. I almost look for water that's perfect for it. Um, anyway, and if you ever get a chance in a store anywhere to cast one, do it. It's just, and then they're not expensive. They're half the price or less than the Winston's or, you know, the Sages or, you know, most of them, you know, really they're good value and, you know, unbreakable. I think they're so soft, but I mean, it just, you can just throw the most perfect line without any chatter. It dampens just perfectly. It's like the best cane rod you ever cast in your life. That instead of weighing four or five ounces, it weighs 1.7 ounces. Hmm. So that's a real favorite. I got, um, I got it. So, I, I know you're not, so you're not promoting any specific brands or anything, but I'm really curious because no. I know you're a big, um, fly tire. What's your go-to, yeah. what's your go-to vice? Oh, I'm a, I'm really stuck on a Regal and I've had those. And actually the one I'm tied on now, I've had it for, uh, I don't know, 35 years or something. And it's, you know, it's one of those, it has a nice, what's nice about it. It's got a nice flat place to raise, to, to rest your, your hand, you know, left hand, if you're a right hand tire, you know, when you're holding up little tails to put on a mayfly or, or anything. So it's got a nice flat thing there. Uh, the vice is always closed. So all you're doing is just pulling a lever to open the jaws and then you let the lever go and it's locked. And there's also a groove in the jaws if you tie in steelhead flies and you want to put a real big hook in there that, you know, you can, you can lock it into a, a, a groove for bigger hooks. So it does everything. It's indestructible. No adjustments, no nothing. I've tied, I mean, a billion flies on it. Uh, and it, it's just as good as the day, the, day, the, the day one I got it. And um, so I really like that. Here's another tip, too, that a lot of people, they, they always have problems with, you know, knocking over their head cement or whatever. You know, you just get a little head, what I always do, and I, I think I got this probably from Bob Quigley, you just take your head cement and you put it at the bottle with the, you know, the little cap and have a little needle or, you know, fine finish nail coming off the cap. A lot of them come that way. So you just dip out a drop or two, whatever you need at a time. Anyway, you put a rubber band around the base of the vise. It never goes anywhere. You just put it up there, you know, dab it on the, on the shank or whatever you're doing, put it back in. So it's always right there at your fingertips, but never in the way and never gets spilled. Um, you know, it's, a, it's just such a simple, simple thing, but you see people that are pulling out special things and not crew in the cap or super glues or whatever. Are, are, you, stuff, are that, you a UV guy? UV at all? Um, I'm doing that a little bit. Um, um, I certainly like that uh, UV not sense. So when I put yeah. a leader on a, a fly line or something, the first thing I do is when I put a new fly line on, I cut the loop off. I think that's those are nice for people who are beginners. And they kind of do a loop to loop thing with their leader and all that kind of stuff. But I don't. I just cut that loop off. I don't want that. Hundred percent agree. I want a nail knot. You just do a loop and you put a. And I don't use a nail. I use a pin. And I carry a, like a big sewing pin. You wrap around that and pull that pin out of there, and then pull the you know the tippet through. I mean, you already put it underneath the uh, the, the wraps. Just pull it out there and uh, wiggle with your fingers. And, you, you know, if you take a little, a little practice, you just get perfect little tight little five or six barrels. Um, and then if you want to take it to another level, you could actually take a little of that UV knot sense and use it as little as possible. You put all that over the top of a knot um, anyway, and then just wipe the, all the excess away and then put it out in the sun there. And uh, so I use it that way a little bit. Uh, the, the UV stuff and also use it a little bit now I'm you know kind of get into uh, you know lake fishing which I'm 
I'm not, you know, I, I fished lakes a lot up here in the college years, years ago, and there'd be sedge hatches and, you know, big dragonfly nymphs and all that kind of stuff, which is a, the way I really prefer to fish. Now, of course, it's all coronamid fishing, and um, I'm having a hard time getting into that, but I, I do it, and I respect those people who do it because it takes talent. There's a lot to it, you know, picking out where the hatching, you know, fishing your fly a foot off the bottom generally, using a fish finder, and I've got all that stuff. I've got a fish finder finally and all that. But uh, the idea of stare, and they use, and that, and they like using UV material for that uh, because underwater, that really stands as flies out. The color, the colors under a UV light, and after you hit it with a UV light, are wildly different often than what they look like in the vise. Yeah. So anyway, I'm just kind of going through the learning curve there, but to stare at a, a big, you know, hot, I just bought some the other day. They're about the size of a ping pong ball or not quite that big, but half, you know, two thirds of a ping pong ball, lime green. So you to put that on there and then run, you know, 10 or 12, 14 feet of line under, underneath that with a, you know, weighted uh, with a swivel and then two feet of tippet with a chronomid. That's how you kind of do it. It goes right down there. It really works. But I mean, the concept of staring at that thing all day just drives me nuts. You know, and my, when I do speaking engagements, um, I'll do, I'll say, oh, it's just by impersonation of a chronomid fisherman. You know, you're staring like you're staring with a thousand yard stare, you know, the eyeballs all big. And all of a sudden says, wow, look at all those ducks coming into the north end of the lake there. And you just go, you just go, your head just turned up. Yep. Yep. I saw that. Yep. You're right back to the looking at that little okay, ball. Okay, David, you and I um, are going chronomid fishing next May. I'm going to change your mind on that. Well, I've had, I have had, I have hit it big a few times there at Forest Lake up by, you know, by uh, Williams Lake and stuff, and I've seen what what it's like when it's unbelievable, and it's when it's really going. You don't even have to set the hook. People just set you know, people just sit in their little pontoon boats. I had a friend up there. We were at that date when I, we, we caught unbelievable number of fish at this lake up there in northern BC. And he was sitting there re- in a pontoon boat, and he had two and two rods out because you can do that if you're the only person in the boat legally in BC. So he had two chronomid sets up, which is a nice way to go. Actually, you can have one at ten feet, one at twelve, or you can experiment a little bit. And he's reading a book, and I said, "Hey, Chris, how how you doing?" He goes, "Oh, good." And I, and I said, "How many you got?" He goes, I think I got about 15. And I said, how many did you get? Did you catch when you had your rod in your hand? He goes, oh, I think just one. <laughs> anyway, they just, you don't have to, what, they're going by so fast with a good sharp hook. They hook that and they can't. They, and, and by the time that indicator goes down, they're in the air. So, you know, yeah, it is exciting. That I, I'm going to work harder at embracing it. So so, but, so you but, and I, can we can go hit Gardam or we can go uh, the ranch um south of me and yeah it's honestly i i get what you're saying like hey if i if i could hit uh you know a beautiful clear stream on a dry fly oh yeah i'd take it all day but the reality is the still water game's different and 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 well you're, those, the guys you're in the thick it, of it, it. they that? catch they catch more fish and bigger fish than us river guys do so there's something to be said for that and there's a lot of skill involved a lot of patience um, but right now, after I'm done, I'm going to get be fishing over the Canadian coastals here next week and a little on the Thompson uh, with a friend there. Um, anyway, after that, um, then it's going to be a little bit of still water time for me. And cool. late September and October on some of these lakes that you know the names of around here, they got the triploids and then they're big fish. They're five mm. to ten pounds. And those little those little damn little coronavirus don't hatch in the fall. 
<laughs> so, <laughs> no. these, so these no. big, these big fish, bit. you know, they come into the shallows and they're feeding on a little bit of they're, you know, anything, little scuds, little, you know, yeah. little damps fly nymphs or, Dragons. you know, hares here or something. Yeah. You know, you throw it out there on a nice floating line, a long leader, let it sink in there a little bit. And you're fishing, you know, three to 10 feet of water, 12 feet often. Yeah. And then you could just let it sink and then just slowly pull it in with little six inch poles and you get these big solid strikes. And um, so I like that. Well, it's and, like fishing um, your, uh, your Pyramid Lake in California, you know, it's uh, it's worth it. But hey, so talk to me about, so the calendar, before we wrap everything up tonight, I, I'm, oh, really, yeah, yeah. I'm really curious about, okay, so if, if we want the Fly Fishing Dreams calendar, and I know you do most of your business through you know, fly fishing clubs or groups. It's not like well, it's, this... a, it's a bunch of things. Years ago, um, when I first started really good going on it, I um, kind of plugged into all the Umqua accounts. I'm, I was, uh, I still do a little bit. I design, or they've used some of my designs, you know, a royalty program for Umqua company or some of my patterns. So um, I put a flyer out about this calendar and everything and uh, sent them, you know, a thousand of them or something. It, because it, my friends there said, oh, yeah, we'll do it for you. They just would include a sheet of this paper um, I advertised in the calendar with every shipment that went out. So I'd come back from a fishing trip, and uh, my fax machine would have barfed out, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 orders. So it was a great way to quickly build up an account base. So that went pretty wild there. And um, But then, of course, in 2008, and the recession, everything, all the, you know, a lot of, a lot of fly shops, probably two out of three or three out of four went out of business. So that kind of dropped that down a little bit. Um, but what's happened, which, which actually filled the gap in there beautifully. And that's my preference really is that over the years when I do speaking engagements at clubs and stuff, um, I do a show there. And then after the show, people come up and say, Oh, you know, I wouldn't mind uh, getting some calendars, you know, for friends of mine or Christmas presents so, um, so I sell them to the shops, but I also sell them, um, you know, privately pretty much the same price. So if people want to get uh, six or more, it's always about postage and how to ship things without paying a ton of postage. And I don't charge postage. I just incorporate that in the price. So if people want to get, say, half a dozen calendars for their buddies or Christmas presents, they're only $9 each. But if they bought one, uh, just a single because the postage and the hassle and the expense, uh, they're $18 each. But I also sell them more and more now, and I like this is and I'm, as I get older and I, I don't need the money much anymore. I like to sell more to clubs and organizations like the International Fly Fishers out of Livingston, Montana. You know, they take a hundred a year or something, and uh, you know, so they'll get them for like seven or eight bucks or you know something like that. I deliver them, um, so I don't really make too much. But but they do it. But they what they're doing is they're they're selling them a little bit at some of the conclaves or some of the shows a little bit, but mostly what they do is they put a thank you note in there and they mail them out to all their big donors every year. They say, thank you for your donation. We appreciate the support and everything. And they also, you know, solicit, you know, future donations. So there's lots of ways to do it, but doing it, selling them to concert to uh, conservation organizations and fishing clubs that use them as fundraisers and stuff. I like that. Those are real consistent ongoing accounts and, and the private accounts probably equal all the fly shops uh, really i mean the number that goes out to private people so, so um, David, i like that if, I, if somebody wants to get a hold of you and said well you know i got a fly shop here we've got a fly fishing group in north america or beyond um and we we want to get your calendars how do we find you what's the best place to find you 
Well, on the back of the calendar is always my is my email address. It says uh, for questions, comments, or speaking engagements, and, and I I try to get the publisher just for fun to say for speaking uh, for for uh, questions, comments, speaking engagements, or death threats. It's David Lambron at Telus.net. <laughs> <laughs> they wouldn't they wouldn't go for that, but um, no. It's so David Lambron um, at Telus.net, and uh, just that that's it. Um, and the same thing, you can contact me through Instagram as well. And actually, I know it sounds strange, but I'm the only David Lambrotten in the entire world. You'll never find anybody with that spelling. Lambrotten is a unique name. There's T-E-N and Lamberton and a few different variations. But Lambrotten, you can go to any telephone book anywhere in the country or the world. You won't find it, except here in Armstrong. Um, so anyway, so I'm, e- I'm kind of easy to find there. But So I'm David Lambrotten. That's all, that's all you need to know to find me on Instagram. And you can message message me that way. And also, see all the pictures of all these fly patterns, all these places, all the stuff we're talking about tonight. It's all there, and there's a little bit of information usually, and um, and about other people, and you know, great places to go, and helpful ideas or whatever. And I'm not selling anything. I just sell calendars, mm. and uh, and I sell photos a little bit to magazines, but not much anymore. I, I kind of like that. You know, it's like it's it's kind of my own magazine in a way. Yeah, I don't have to deal with advertisers, and I don't have to go through that where you get a free trip to you know Timbuktu, and then you've got to write some glorified article about what a great time you had or something. I I, I hate that. I don't want to do that. That's ever again. that's what I love about you. You own it. It's you. It's genuine. It's unique. And you, you I want to thank you for all you've done over the years with your with your calendars, with your articles, and all the fly fishing magazines, and just. Just being you, because for me, that's um, it's good stuff, and 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 we appreciate you coming on the podcast. Yeah, and it's just been fun. I've enjoyed talking tonight, and uh, yeah, anything I say, you can use it. I don't, you know, it's straight up, you know, and uh, I like that. We've, I like to live that. Well, you're living that dream, and you're living a lot of people's dreams. And I, I want to thank you for coming on the show. We've been chatting tonight with David Lembroton. Uh, photographer, um, writer, publisher. He he spends half his time in British Columbia, half his time in New Zealand, guided for very many years uh, in Northern California, Alaska, Oregon, um, Yellowstone, Skeena. Spent his time in Russia, China, Chile, Argentina, Belize, Mexico, Costa Rica, Fiji, the Seychelles, and Tahiti. Basically, He's a guy ahead of the curve and and encourage you to look him up on Instagram. And if you need some really cool fly fishing calendars, fly fishing dreams, look him up at David Lumbrowton on, on Instagram. Thanks David for doing this. Appreciate it. Hey, it was my pleasure. And it was fun. I can't believe two hours, two hours. uh, Look at the thing here on my screen here, two hours and six minutes. That just flew by. The fly fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by the fly Thank you for listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Your feedback matters. Let us know if there's a person or topic you'd like discussed. Email us at mark at flyfishing97.com. Until next time, tight lines and we'll see you on the water.